You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Thank you, thank you. Wow, it's such a privilege to be here today and to share with you about my vocational journey. Now, a lot of times when we think about vocational journey, we just think about job or career. But I want to expand that idea a bit because it involves all of the different roles and responsibilities and relationships that I'm involved in. More than career or job. And so I'm sharing a lot about my career, my job, but it's much more than that. My story is in, involves a lot of obstacles as well as mercy, disappointments as well as surprises, and certainly challenges as well as God's faithfulness. Journey is really the right word because on a journey there's lots of twists and turns, right? And that's been my experience. Probably no one is more surprised than I am that I've been a professor of Christian ministries at Asbury for 30 years plus. It's an amazing thing to me. Psalm 23.3, you know this passage. You may have memorized it in vacation Bible school as I did years ago. The second part of that verse, He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Now, you probably learned it in a different translation. I grew up in the days when all we had was King James Version. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. But recently, I came across a different rendering of that verse, and I checked with Dr. Julianne Burnett, who is our professor of Hebrew and Old Testament, because I've never studied Hebrew. So I didn't know if this rendering was an accurate one or not. She said, well, it's probably not an accurate translation, but it probably captures the idea of the verse about as well as anything. And it goes like this. This is from Rabbi Harold Kushner. The shepherd leads me in roundabout ways that end up in the right direction. And I feel like my journey has been a lot of that. So I want to go to July 4th, 1989. You probably don't remember that date. I do. It was the very first time that I ever turned onto the driveway we call Macklem Drive on the campus of Asbury University. I was here for an interview. If you can imagine having a job interview on July 4th, it was kind of strange. But I had an interview that afternoon, and then again in the morning, I met with the department faculty. I met with the academic dean, Dr. Bonnie Banker at the time. I met with President Dennis Kenlaw. I think I'm the last of our religion faculty here at Asbury who were hired by Dr. Kenlaw, whatever that's worth. He was a great man. And I was privileged to know him just a little bit. But in that interview, I also met with a faculty status committee. This is a group of faculty members who are wanting to make sure that whoever they bring in is going to be a fit for Asbury University. And so they asked me a variety of questions. And at least three different times in the interview with those four different groups of people, I was asked this question. So if you come to Asbury, how long will you stay? I came to find out later that another Nazarene minister had come and was part of the faculty at Asbury, and then after a few years, they left and went to a Nazarene school. And so I think they thought, here comes another one. He's going to do the same thing. 
So if you come to Asbury, how long will you stay? Well, the first thought I had about what I would do with my life was completely different than this. It was to be a missionary. I was 12 years old and at a missions conference up in Columbus, Ohio. At the end of the message, the missionary uh, invited anyone who would be willing to go wherever God called them to go, to do whatever God called them to do, to come and kneel at the altar, as we often do here at Hughes Auditorium, and just cement that with God. And so, 12-year-old tender heart that I was, I went and I prayed and I cried and I gave everything I had to God. Whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, I will go. I will do. And so because that happened at a missions conference, I just assumed I was called to be a missionary. (laughs) Kind of a natural assumption, I guess. And so I began to prepare. I even contacted my denominational missions board, and they put me on a list and would send me information every now and then to prepare me for being a future missionary. Well, then I got to college, (laughs) and you've got to make decisions, right? What am I going to major in? Well, I met this cute girl. Her name is Pam. And I started paying attention to her around campus. Today they'd call it stalking. (laughs) But I wanted to know her. I wanted to know about her. I wanted to find out if she was a person that I could be interested in and more than just a casual acquaintance. Fifty years this October 29th was our first date. We've been together for a long time. I eventually married her. Yeah, I actually had hair at one time. Well, ministry was kind of a natural thing for me. And so I got involved in ministry opportunities on campus as well as uh, in the larger community. But at some point, I went to Pam's home and met her parents. I don't know how many of you have had that experience. Yeah, it was kind of odd. Pam introduced me to her dad who had just gotten home from work. He was an electrician and worked in a factory near Cleveland and uh, introduced us. And then she and her mom went into the um, kitchen to prepare the dinner. And there I was sitting on the couch, and her dad was in his easy chair where he always was in the afternoon when he got home reading the newspaper. And I'm twiddling my thumbs. And I'm thinking, this is very awkward. Well, eventually he dropped the newspaper, and he said, so what are you majoring in? Um, I'm a piano major, but I'm not sure I'm going to stay there. I may major in religion, and maybe I'll major in sociology. He goes, oh, newspaper goes back up. I keep twiddling my thumbs, and I'm thinking, that was a bad, bad play. Newspaper drops. So what are you going to do when you graduate? We have to understand he is, was not a believer. And I said, well, I think God wants me to be a missionary. Oh, newspaper goes up. And I'm thinking, oh, now he thinks I'm going to marry his daughter. I'm going to take her to live in some a jungle village in Africa. She's going to die of some rare disease or of a snake bite of some kind. He'll never have grandchildren. He'll never see us again. Pretty soon he drops the newspaper again and he says, you know what? I think they need missionaries out here on the east end of Cleveland more than they do in Africa. 
And God used that statement from a pagan man to open my view of what mission was. Mission is not just something that happens in a different country. It's anywhere we are, we can be involved in God's mission. And so I thought about what I was going to major in and ended up in sociology. Sociology is good for missionaries. Dr. Sims, yes? Yeah, take a, a sociology class or two. It's good for you. Well, I was uh, born in a parsonage. That's why ministry was kind of a natural thing for me. My dad pastored in small towns in western Ohio, and uh, we lived in four different cities and seven different houses by the time I started school. We moved around a lot. It was kind of a hard thing. But I also had to deal with my dad's anger. And it was hard to reconcile a dad who was a pastor, a Christian, but also was very angry. You see, when we moved from Western Ohio to Columbus, I didn't know why we had moved. I didn't know why we had left the house, that, the first house that they had owned. Later years, I've discovered that my dad did something that violated his oath as a minister and they removed his ministry credentials from him. He couldn't be a pastor. He couldn't be an evangelist. He couldn't preach. And he was angry because of that. And that anger got spilled out on his family. I remember pulling the pillow over my head at night so I wouldn't hear him yelling at my mom. I remember the times that I avoided him at all costs. He worked midnight to 8 o'clock shift, and so I would make sure I left for school before he got home. I didn't want to be around him. My clinical psychologist brother would say that we, we were emotionally abused, and I think that's probably right. And there have been things I've had to deal with in my life since then because of that. Some of you may have been in that kind of place before, but I know that God's grace is adequate because it's been adequate for me in the midst of all of that. Well, my dad did give me my first opportunity to preach. Eventually, they gave him his credentials back because he towed the line, got back in place where he should have been, and uh, he was holding revival meetings at a small town north of Columbus. And he and the pastor got together and decided that Friday night would be youth night and I would preach. It was nice of them to decide that without consulting with me. Yeah, so here I am preaching my first sermon. I'm 16 years old. What did I know about preaching? I think I was done in about 10 minutes, and I realized it wasn't long enough, so I preached it again. Yeah. It was a small crowd, about 30 people, and six of them were pastors. Think about intimidation. But the thing I remember most is that those six pastors, every one of them came up to me afterwards and said, you did a great job. I knew they were lying through their teeth. But nonetheless, they were providing encouragement and, in a sense, mentoring me in just that incidental moment, and I appreciated it. Well, I got to college, and I met David Kuby. David Kuby was an Old Testament professor. I had, I had Old Testament at 8 o'clock in the morning. Anybody have that experience? Yeah, you know my pain. I won't tell you about the time I fell asleep in class. Yeah, I don't recommend it. But he was a great friend. I think I only had the one class with him, but he'd see me around campus and with Pam, and he'd call me Eclair, and she was cream puff. 
Okay, he's kind of a strange guy, but he was a very nice guy, and his story comes, he comes back in my story a little bit later on. Well, I continued in college as a sociology major, volunteering in churches. I was a worship leader in a couple of churches, one an inner city mission in Boston, and then in a suburban church in uh, the Boston area as well for one year. Those, those were great experiences. In my senior year, I had an opportunity to take a class in youth ministry. I really didn't know much about what youth ministry was. There weren't youth pastors when I was growing up. I only knew one youth pastor in the city of Columbus, Ohio, when I was growing up. I was the second youth pastor I ever knew. It wasn't a big deal. But they had a class in youth ministry, and I thought, well, that sounds interesting, and it's kind of related to sociology in a way. And so I took that class, and it turned my life around. So when I graduated from college, I had a full-time ministry position in northern New Jersey. I was youth pastor and worship leader at this church, and I learned a lot of things. I had a lot to learn, for sure. I had no models of what youth ministry looked like to fall back on. After six months, the pastor came to me and said, you know what? you haven't brought in enough teens to pay for your salary, and so we're going to cut this position. Six months into my career, and I was fired. That was not a real blessing to me in some ways, but maybe some other ways it was. It humbled me for sure. We landed in Youngstown, Ohio, and the pastor there, Art Brown, became a dear friend. He believed in me, nurtured me, uh, cared for me in all the pain that I had from being fired, and he, uh, he was a great support and encouragement. We knew that we were going to seminary at some point, and so after about a year and a half in that church, uh, we started to head to seminary. When I announced that to the church, a lady from the church came up to me in the parking lot after the service and said, you know what, I think you'd make a great professor. The idea of being a professor had never crossed my mind before. And here's Dottie Powell, saying, you'd make a great professor. I think what she really meant was, you're not connecting with my middle school daughter. But it gave me a spark, and I began thinking about teaching. When I arrived at seminary, my very first teacher was D. Freeborn. D. Freeborn was a dear man, a very good professor. He was new at the, at the role of being a professor as well. But he, uh, he became my friend as well as my teacher. And he believed in me in this possibility of being a college professor at some point. And so for my supervised ministry, instead of doing a normal thing, going into a church and leading a small group or teaching a Sunday school class or something like that, my supervised ministry was meeting with Dee Freeborn and working on how do you put a syllabus together? How do you write course objectives? I did bibliographic research for him. I graded papers for him. Occasionally when he was out of town, I would teach a class for him. And I began to get a sense of what it would be like to be a college professor. Well, I graduated from the seminary and intent on starting a Ph.D. program somewhere down the road. I ended up in a church in Southern California, just outside of Los Angeles. And it was a very good church, a very strong church in many ways. I had a good four years there. And one of the great things that happened in that church is I developed some real solid disciplines Every morning began with an hour of prayer and Bible study. Another hour was given to personal development and study and reading. And so for six years, that was my practice every morning 
an hour of scripture and prayer, an hour of study and growth. I spent almost no time in front of a TV unless Ohio State was on. Yeah, which didn't happen much back then when you were in Southern California. We didn't have ESPN. But God did some wonderful things in those days. After a few years, we moved to Oregon City, Oregon. Anybody ever play the Oregon Trail game? The end of the Oregon Trail is Oregon City. Every day as I went from my house to the church, I went by the meadow where all the wagon trains had ended up 150 years before. It was a great blessing. My pastor there was Ken Spicer. He was a man who believed in my potential. The interesting thing is he was a brother-in-law of my seminary mentor, D. Freeborn. They had married twin sisters. And so the reason I ended up at this church is largely because of D. Freeborn. Ken Spicer was a great man, a good leader of the church. We had a wonderful six and a half years. The church grew from 300 to 450 in those years. God really blessed us in many ways. He took a hit from some people in the church who thought I shouldn't start a doctoral program. I maintained 45 hours a week in service to the church in addition to working on a doctoral program at a university 80 miles away. So it was a very chaotic time. I lost those disciplines of regular time every morning because it just didn't exist. But I got to work on the doctoral program because of Ken and his support. It was just a month, uh, I'm sorry, a year ago this month that I went back to Oregon City, Oregon and was privileged to give a eulogy for my mentor and friend. Over the years, I called him every Pearl Harbor Day. That was his birthday. I called him every Pearl Harbor Day to say thank you. And I was glad to have that one last opportunity on behalf of the family to say thank you. Well, I had a decision to make in the fall of 1988. The decision was go gung-ho on the dissertation and get it done off my back, or spend some time sending out resumes to colleges hoping to get a teaching position in the fall of 1989. It was a difficult decision, but I finally decided, you know what, I'll just get the dissertation done. It means I'll continue to be here at this church for another year, and that's fine. Good church, good people, good pastoral staff to work with. That'll be okay. But I gave up any possibility of teaching in the fall of 1989. Well, I want to go back to David Kuby, my professor at my first college. Um, about every two or three years, well, he had come to the seminary when I was a student there and taught a January term class. And so I, uh, I had opportunity one day of that week to sit down with him and have lunch, and I shared with him my interest in maybe moving into college teaching at some point. And so every two or three years, he would contact me and say, are you ready? Is your, is your doctoral work done? And I'd say, no, I haven't started yet, or no, I'm not there yet. But it was an encouragement along the way. And so uh, here I am coming up to the spring of 1989, coming up to the defense of my dissertation, and I get something in the mail from David Kuby. And I thought, could it be? that they're going to have a position open just as I'm finishing up, and God's going to work it all out anyway? 
And I found out when I opened the envelope that there was no note at all from him, no personal note. It was just a form, position announcement, Christian Ministries, Asbury College. I knew almost nothing about Asbury College. I think I'd heard about it during the 1970 revival, but other than that, I didn't know anything about it. And so, I thought, you know what? That's not a school I want to go to. I need to focus on my dissertation defense. And so, I, and I thought, man, it's spring. By now, they've already filled this position. It's too late in the year for them to be filling a position for this fall. And so, I didn't even call. A couple of weeks later, I decided, you know what? I might as well call. It doesn't hurt to make a phone call. A few dollars for a long-distance call. I know you don't know what a long-distance call is <clears throat> because every call is free on your plan. But I called, and they said, you know what? We just offered that position to someone, but check back with us in a couple of weeks. And I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was so focused on my dissertation defense, I just forgot about it. Well, a couple of weeks later, they called back and said, he turned it down. We'd really like to see your information. Now, an application for a teaching position at a college is not just an application form. Yes, there's that. But there's also your personal testimony, your philosophy of teaching, and a lot of other documents. And so I had to get all that ready. I said, you know what? I'm defending in two days. Can I send it after that? And they said, sure. By the way, the person I talked to was Sarah Beth's mom. You know Sarah Beth? Vice President for Student Development? Yeah, it was her mom that I talked to. I said, can I send it after the defense? They said, sure. So I defended on Thursday. Friday, I got all the materials together, sent it off next day air. Monday morning at 9 o'clock, I had a phone call. When can you come for an interview? I said, I'm going to be in Indianapolis for a church conference. I'm going to be in Ohio to visit family for a while. I can drive down from Ohio. They said, that'd be great. I just saved them 300 bucks on an airplane ticket, right? So I arrived here on July 4th for an interview. As I drove out of town on July 5th on I-75 near Georgetown, I had to pull off to the side of the road because I had so many tears flowing from my eyes I couldn't see the road anymore. Without any expectation of having a teaching position the next year, I had a contract in my hand and I wasn't sure it was, I was going to take it because it wasn't the school I always thought Pam and I would go to. Well, it took me a little while, but I made the decision to come. We packed up our kids. We packed up all of our goods and put them in a U-Haul truck, drove across the country in December. We got in between snowstorms, by God's grace. When we got here, we thought we want to make Christmas as normal as possible for our kids. And so we uh, had always gotten Chris Christmas, tree tr Christmas trees from a Christmas tree farm. I didn't know where any were, so we just went down to IGA and got a Christmas tree. The Christmas tree farm we'd gotten them from in, in uh, Oregon was in Malino, Oregon, about one-tenth the size of Wilmore. Um, no IGA, no restaurants at all, just a post office and a um, a service station. But Maxine and Henry Fritz, members of our church, lived there, and they just let us come and chop down a tree and take it back with us. So we went down to IJA, got a tree, I went back to the house, 
got it ready, put it up, and I found a tag on it. Do you know where it came from? Molino, Oregon. How weird is that? And it was confirmation of what God was doing in my life at that point. His grace is sufficient for me. Well, I had a steep learning curve as I started to teach. I'd never taught a full course before. A lot of things I needed to learn. I remember one particular day. I was right down here in uh, Hughes 135. And in the middle of class, as I was lecturing, it dawned on me, they're listening. In youth ministry, they didn't always listen. And then it dawned on me, they're taking notes. And I had this sense of raw power. (laughs) And it scared me to death. Why would they be writing down anything I'm saying? But there was a sense after that in which I realized this is what I'm called to do. This is the sweet spot. Well, I've had lots of blessings over the years. The colleagues, the students I've worked with, I've been department chair for 25 years. I've done program development. Uh, I've been kidnapped by students a couple of different times. Those were sweet times. I'm not recommending you do it again, just, just saying. Oh, what about being a missionary? Well, I've had the opportunity since I've been here to lead mission trips to Mexico, many different places, to Venezuela, to Peru, to Brazil. I've been able to teach in a large Asian country three different times, uh, including a stint in the Philippines for, for a whole semester three years ago, and teaching students from Korea, Myanmar, Papua New Guinea, Uh, just all over the Eastern uh, Asian area. God has given me so many opportunities and blessings. Sometimes God's mercy and grace has come directly to me in those times of devotion and worship, and other times it's come to me through other people, certainly through my wife, who when we arrived here, having followed me from Boston to New York to Ohio to Kansas City, to California, to Oregon, and now to Wormore, she said, I'm not moving again. So when I got a call a couple of years after arriving to, to interview at another school, she said, that'd be a long commute. It was down in Nashville. That's my wife. We have three wonderful kids serving the Lord, seven grandchildren that are just as precious. You can see them on my door downstairs. They say, please wear your mask if you're near me. And by the way, I finally now can answer the question, how long are you going to stay? Final answer, 32 years. Thank you. <laughs>